You can hear SequelCast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear SequelCast, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy, just find Stitcher in the App Store. Download it, it's free, and takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box and enter SequelCast to get automatically entered to win $100. The latest episode of the show will always be waiting for you in your favorites. You'll get access to lots of other amazing shows, too. Always available to you on demand, no syncing. It's Stitcher Smart Radio. Don't forget to enter the promo code SequelCast when you register. Just go to stitcher.com slash SequelCast. There was a podcast called the SequelCast that talked about movies. Movies. And they also talked about something else called boobies. Boobies. It's the SequelCast. Oh yeah, the SequelCast. It's the SequelCast. www.sequelcast.com And welcome to the sequel cast. The uh, sequel cast is a show where we talk about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. Since it's December, we decided to cover a uh, series of films uh, focused around Christmas. We're going to talk about the first film in the Home Alone quadrilogy, uh, simply titled Home Alone. It was released in 1990, directed by Chris Columbus, uh, written and produced by John Hughes, starring Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, uh, released through 20th Century Fox. With me Don't is... Don't forget Catherine O'Hara. Well, Catherine O'Hara, of course. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Get on your knees and tell me you love me. All right. Uh, uh, Jersey Jason. They call me the Sticky Bandit. I won't tell you why. <laughs> uh, with us, we have uh, two guests, actually. The first of which is Susanna Gora. She is the author of the book that just came out in paperback, You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, The Brat Pack, John Hughes, and Their Impact on a Generation. Uh, Susanna, welcome to the sequel cast. Thanks for having me. No problem. And we also have, uh, as a guest, uh, James. Uh, He is a Home Alone enthusiast, and he reportedly did well one night on a Home Alone trivia-themed thing at Bar Trivia. Is that right, James? Uh, That's correct. Thanks for having me as well. Oh, no problem. Uh... So I think before we jump into speaking about Home Alone and what we remember from the movie, uh, Susanna, as I read your book, uh, You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, the Brett Pack, John Hughes, and their impact on a generation, which uh, you can learn more about at brattpackbook.com, is it's really, you look at John Hughes' career, and he didn't direct that many movies. He wrote and produced a lot, but what he actually directed uh, wasn't as many films as people might think. That's right, but his influence is, is just so astounding. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's really one of the most culturally resonant movie makers of modern times. And yeah, I, he just was able to write so many scripts because he wrote them so quickly. I mean, he literally wrote Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I think, in around 48 hours, something like that. Um, and he, he was, uh, 
you know, even even something like Home Alone, he could the last forty four pages of Home Alone, I think he wrote in eight hours. So <laughs> when you when you think about that, it makes sense that he was able to make so many movies in the years uh, in which he was working actively. Uh, he simply did not have time to direct them all. So a lot of these films that we think of as John Hughes films were actually movies that he wrote and produced uh, than with other people directing, uh, like Home Alone, which Chris Columbus directed, or a movie like Pretty in Pink, which Hughes wrote and produced, but Howie Deutsch directed. Uh, but even in the ones that he didn't direct, Hughes always really kept um, a lot of involvement, a lot of artistic influence. Uh, you know, these movies were also his babies. Right, and... Um you know, although we there certainly hasn't really been anything equivalent to a John Hughes since, you can feel his influence in hell. I mean, like the American Pie franchise is very much like John Hughes uh, in the sense of dealing with high school students and uh, having them have relationships and things. But uh, I really liked a, a comedy out of 2001 called Not Another Teen Movie, which is more of a parody, but it paid a lot of nice tribute to uh, John Hughes films. It's a great film and uh, one that I one that I talk about in my book. Uh, and really, I mean, almost any movie made about young people in America since the 1980s has to have John Hughes as some kind of an influence. And you can't make an American teen movie without Hughes somewhere in your consciousness. Uh, nor can you watch one without thinking about him uh, to some extent. I mean, he really gave birth to what we think of as the teen movie genre. Before him, of course, there were teen movies. But, you know, you get one every now and then, and it wasn't really a real robust genre. He forever changed the way Hollywood makes and markets movies about young people. And one of the things I loved about the film Not Another Teen Movie is all the great references to John Hughes' films, including, I love that the cafeteria in that is called the Anthony Michael Dining Hall. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, his influence lives on and on, and, you know, today's teenagers love John Hughes movies. They dress up as Ducky for Halloween. They can quote every line for Breakfast Club. They give a Ferris Bueller quote in their high school yearbook. I mean, uh, he's, he's such a resonant and beloved part of pop culture, and I really think he always will be. It was really uh, moving and to see the 2010 Oscars when they did the John Hughes tribute and so many of the actors and stuff that have worked in films he directed, wrote, and produced took stage together. It was amazing. Yeah. And, I, and I thought that was such a powerful moment because it really validated his importance as a filmmaker. You know, I think for so long, um, so many kind of uh, film snobs uh, wouldn't utter the word Oscar in the same sentence as the, as the words John Hughes. Um, and what was wonderful about that evening was it really drove home the point uh, John Hughes and his films matter. And um, they may have been at the time seen as just kind of, you know, light teenage films, but the generations have proven uh, that they really are important cultural touchstones that captured a generation and forever uh, gave this beautiful glimpse of what it was like to be young in America in the 80s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first John Hughes film I ever remember I seeing was... Was a Breakfast Club, and it was something they made us watch in school. Oh, uh, really? That's yeah. cool. Oh man, Breakfast Club. Yeah, I can't. I think it was because a, sub, a substitute teacher must have been in class that day or something, but and put on a movie. But there's some language in there. Yes. there's some language in Little Milkshake. I mean, like I think I remember. Uh, I think the first one I probably saw was National Lampoon's Vacation because my mm-hmm. father loves National Lampoon, um, and then of course as a child, how formative weird science was to my psyche. Um, and I still, to this day, actually, I freeze frame with my fist in the air every time I hear, don't you forget about me. 
I was trying to make a woman out of a computer. <laughs> oh, good. I think uh, from there we can move on to talking about Home Alone proper. Uh, James, when is the first time you remember watching Home Alone? I actually do not remember the first time I saw Home Alone, but I'm assuming it was probably like on TNT at my mom's house back in Texas <laughs> back okay. in the 90s. But, yeah, I don't remember the first time, to be honest. Uh, what about you, Susanna? I saw it in theaters when it came out. I guess I would have been, I'm bad at math right now, I would have been around 14, I guess, 13 or 14 then, and uh, I really loved it, but i got to tell you, each year as I get older, and every year when I see it on TV at Christmas time, I get something different from it, you know, and Hmm. now that I'm a grown-up and in my 30s, you know, uh, I see it in a different way than I did, I think, as a kid, but, you know, one of the great things about it is it's that wonderful way Hughes had of blending comedy and, and poignancy in one movie. Uh, just when we think of all the, the physical comedy in this, the pratfalls and, you know, tricking the burglars and all that stuff, uh, it's such a wild kind of comedy, but then you think of the poignancy in the movie with, you know, the old man next door reuniting with his family. I mean, you cry at the end. It's so touching. And that's such a John Hughes hallmark. I mean, when I interviewed Judd Nelson for my book, he was talking about, you know, even at the end of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, when you realize that the John Candy character is a widow, I mean, that's just so powerful and heartbreaking. And uh, anyway, that's just one of the great gifts of John Hughes, is he realized life combines sad things and funny things and beautiful things all in one, and so should the movies. And also with John Hughes' work, he also recognized that people, whether they're adults, teenagers, or children, are flawed and they all have problems. It's not like, yay, Skippy, we're going to go eat ice cream all day or whatever. There's a real sense of heart to to his films, and you can see that in this uh, First Home Alone film. And even though the marketing for this has the robbers breaking in the house and him posing with the robbers, going to kick him in the nuts or whatever... Uh, there, that that's only like the last twenty minutes of the film. It's a very small yeah. part uh, compared yeah. to some of the later films in the series. That's true, but I think it's understandable why they had all that in the marketing, you know, because that's probably the stuff that would p- appeal to little kids. But there's so much more going on here. It really, I mean, not to sound cheesy, but it really is a movie about the meaning of family and, uh, you know, realizing that even even when brothers and sisters or parents and children get on each other's nerves, that they just love each other so much. And, uh, you know, it's really powerful to think of how great it is when they're finally all reunited at the end, uh, both both Macaulay Culkin's character and his family and the old man neighbor next door and his family. It's very touching. Uh, Thrasher, when did you first see this film? I I saw this film uh, possibly within the first week of its release. Uh, I was ten years old, and that winter, for for whatever reason, I ended up seeing Home Alone three times in the theater. <laughs> and and it was and it was always the weirdest thing. Like I, it, it, I I never I never specifically asked to go, but for whatever reason, I had a few different circles of friends, and on three different weekends. Like they're like, hey, let's go to a movie, and I would I would end up going along. And the first time I saw it, uh, I you know I liked it. The second time I saw it, I liked it a lot. The third time I saw it, I was like, oh, well, this is pretty good. And for whatever reason, again, I saw the movie when I was ten for the first time. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but but isn't Macaulay Culkin's character supposed to be ten? I think he's eight, a little younger, maybe eight or nine. Okay, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of something else, but so I was 10 when this movie came out, and I was 11 when it came out on video, and for whatever reason, once my counter turned over to 11, 
I I just turned on this movie and turned on it hard. I everyone had it on video and everyone wanted to watch it on video except me. <laughs> uh, what about you, Jason? Um, again, I saw it in the theater first week. Yeah, right. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I was nine years old, so I wasn't as okay. I wasn't as jaded as Thrasher. <laughs> um, you didn't see and, the and, shit and I frankly, saw. Man. I, I had seen this. I had actually seen Macaulay Culkin in Uncle Buck before this right. with John Candy. I was a yep. big John Candy fan when I, as a kid. Oh. So then I saw this movie and didn't even realize that it was the same. It was the same people. I just knew John Candy was in it, and so was this little kid and Catherine O'Hara. I don't know why I liked all those Canadian actors. I think SCTV played on PBS or something. But yeah. um, just it was uh, the movie itself was wish fulfillment. Uh-huh. I like hanging things by string, such as, like, doodads and stuff. I'm like, oh, I could make these traps. As a kid, this is like, like I could do this. It's like Red Dawn in a single house. <laughs> <laughs> it's Die Hard in the kid's home. It, no, that's actually, that's very much what it is. It's like, he's setting these traps, these people, and he gets, he gets run out of the house. He gets to do whatever he wants because his parents aren't there. It's the idea of the kid who's left behind but it's in a territory that he knows. I was left behind in the mall once, and I freaked out. Uh, now, of course, if I had been locked in that mall overnight and had free run of all the toy stores and stuff, <laughs> and then had to defend it against like a team of crooks, a la Paul Blart, I'd probably be dead. But in this movie, that can't happen. The kid's not going to die. I also was afraid of the old man. Every time he came on the screen, I got scared. Yeah, Until, of course. The end. You find out. He yeah, yeah. Find out what's in the end. He's not so bad, right? And uh, with me, you know, I, I lived overseas uh, when I was younger, as I've said on the show before. And I moved back to the United States, and we moved into a, a, a little townhouse in uh, uh, northern Virginia. And our, our neighbors all had this movie on videotape, and we hadn't even heard of Home Alone, if you can believe that. So we got it as a Christmas gift from one of our neighbors, and uh, I watched it. And it really put the fear into me, a fear I think I still have, <laughs> of people breaking into the house at night or something. And because, uh, you know, the home oh, actually, is... Oh, no, that's, that's not weird. That's not weird. I, I kind of, I still have a little bit of that. I mean, the home is a place where people typically feel safe. And even though the, the robbers breaking into the house, the wet bandits, is such a small part of this film. It was something that felt very real. And like uh, I, I felt like I was around Macaulay Culkins at the age I saw this film, so I could relate to him. And uh, let's go talk about Macaulay Culkin yeah, for I'm a actually, second. I'm actually afraid of Joe Pesci breaking into my house. Well, it's, it's funny. Weird. It's funny you mentioned Joe Pesci, because uh, in one of the recent releases of Home Alone on DVD, there's a commentary by the director Chris Columbus and Macaulay Culkin, of all people. And he talks about, in rehearsals, there's a scene at the end of the movie where Joe Pesci threatens to bite uh, Macaulay Culkin's fingers off. And in rehearsal, Macaulay Culkin actually bit one of Macaulay's fingers so hard, there's still a scar on his finger. And and they're saying that Joe Pesci and some of the other actors in this film were so, were kind of upset that a little kid was the star of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And they felt like window dressing on the side. Uh, they were referencing specifically Joe Pesci and then uh, John Hurd, the actor that plays the father. Um, sure. Which is kind of weird because the, the film is clearly but about also, the, the kid O'Hara being a star. Captain O'Hara does stand out. Captain O'Hara uh-huh. is kind of her, her odyssey back to her son. It is a, it's, her role in it is good. She gets all the um, emotional she, heights. Yeah. Yes. But I, I like how Macaulay Culkin, unlike other uh, child actors... 
he doesn't seem fake. He seems kind of earnest. He, I don't, the way he speaks uh, to me sounds more natural. Than, he's uh, better than this than he is in Uncle Buck. His 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 delivery, Uncle Buck, is kind of very flat, and it's like it's so sarcastic. He seems very snarky, and I don't like him in that movie as a kid. In this, it's funny because he has to defend his house from two creepy jerks, just especially Daniel Stern. Already looks like he's been electrocuted. God. <laughs> uh, James, out of the Wet Bandits, who do you think is more scary, Daniel Stern or Joe Pesci? Uh, I think uh, Joe Pesci's character is a little bit more scary to me. Um, like you said, the biting the fingers off, and Marge just seems kind of goofy overall. <laughs> you know, chewing the gum with the snow globes on the dashboard. But some of the some of the things that happens to him, oh God, the oh, the nail! I still yeah. ah, I can't oh, get yeah. over the nail in the foot. Oh. <laughs> Again, it's, you're right. That's only a small part of the movie. Is them actually setting the traps? But some of those things, oh, broken, broken ornaments on the, oh, seriously, <laughs> it's like, oh, God, continue, yeah, the one that pains me the most is the blowtorch to the head, though, on Joe Pesci. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that should have killed him. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because, you know, it is, it's hilarious. It's great physical comedy. You know, the climactic scene where Macaulay foils the robbers. But, you know, there's this one kind of, like, chilling, horrifying moment when Daniel Stern catches his leg. You know what I'm talking about? When then yeah. the last minute the tarantula saves the day and he's able to put the tarantula on Daniel Stern's face. But there's this instant where Daniel Stern catches his leg. And for the full moment, it's like it's kind of, like, horrifying where you just think for, <laughs> that's one moment when I always get out of the movie for a second. Like, oh, my God, you know, if this was real life, they would literally, like, kill him and, you know, <laughs> hide his body. And that's that's not a comedy, <laughs> a children's comedy no. subject matter. And, you know, that I guess that's what's sort of interesting is if you were to ever think about it in any real terms, it's it's so horrifically unsettling. You know, like, even just the scene earlier when the, the bad guys are in the van driving down the street talking to Macaulay's character and they start kind of chasing him in the van. I mean, again, any of the real life version of that would just be beyond horrifying. And so, you know, you have to kind of uh, remind yourself that it's a movie. But the other thing that I love is, you know, he, he totally foils them with the most ordinary, normal stuff. I mean, everyone yeah. has Christmas ornaments lying around and, you know, little mini toy cars and stuff. There's nothing yeah. extraordinary there. It's not even like in weird science, you know, using a computer to make a girl. I mean, he's doing stuff any little kid has lying around the house is what he's using. It's just brilliant, you know? You're right, well, and that helps. tactics are pretty insane, though, as a kid. I mean, the, the idea to put that stuff together, but putting the, what, was it, what is it he does? To the, he, he, not a poker. He puts something on the door to make it hot. It's, it's, it's like yeah. a heating element. It's yeah. one of those right. car. I think it's yeah. the thing that's supposed to keep your engine block warm when you start it. How does a kid that age know how to hook one of those? You plug it into the wall. That's what you do. You know what? No, actually, I take that back. Kids today don't know how to do that stuff. I, I, I feel like <laughs> I think kids need to get back into that. Like actually, like learning how to dismantle car parts and stuff like that. Like, how many kids today know how to take a, a radio out of a car? Or even out of wire a car. You, 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 and me. We are from the last guerrilla warfare generation of children. We were the last generation that would build forts out of old sticks in the front yard and and hoard rocks Again, and things like that. Bringing it back to Red Dawn, how are we going to fight the communists when they invade? <laughs> it's true. Well, another difference in terms of like 
kids today versus, you know, the kids from this era when we were kids, basically. I mean, this movie couldn't be made today because in one second, you know, they'd all, when they got to France, they would find an international cell phone, they'd call back home, they'd put it on Facebook, they'd Twitter about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, technology would allow them to reconnect with him in about 20 minutes. And whereas in this movie, I mean, I was really amazed. Hughes thought of every little thing to cover how it was that, first of all, that they were able to leave him behind, even that thing where they do a head count and they count the neighbor by accident. That's yeah. like brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. And, you know, the power lines being out so the phones don't work, and then, you know, they try the police, and the police go to the house when he's not answering the door because he's scared of the bad guy. I mean, he, he was just thought of every little thing, and it just worked in the early 90s. You know, but today, I don't think there's any way that people would not be able to somehow reach the kid through some meat, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So I think we're lucky that we had this movie when it when it came out. Oh, actually, one thing that, that that does stick in my mind about about like every little thing, um, they, the family. One of the things which I had actually forgotten until going back to this movie for for the podcast was that the the reason the family's so far away is they're going to spend Christmas in in France, and it, it it occurred to me did did the parents not notice that. Like what happened to Kevin's passport? Did they yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, tickets at the beginning, right? When they were cleaning up the spilled milk, like he, the dad picks up one of the rags and throws it in the trash, and there's a ticket in there. I'm assuming the passport might be there too. Could be. Oh, that's oh, that's what oh, that is. I was always huh. wondering what that is. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's a great point, uh, James, because it's a it's, you get a big close up of them throwing something in the trash, and I I didn't even catch yeah. what that was. But, uh, yeah, you can a, just see it sticking out behind the, the rag or napkin, whatever it is he throws in there. You haven't spoken for a bit, James. Mm-hmm. What's something about Home Alone that makes it a treasured movie for you? Um, I think I agree with Susanna. Pretty much every time I watch it, I find something new. And um, to me, it's more than, I guess it's not really a holiday movie to me, in my opinion. Like I mentioned to you the other day on Twitter, it really is kind of a uh, coming-of-age movie. You know, for Kevin, he starts out as a little brat at the beginning who wants his cheese pizza and can't pack his own suitcase to be left alone, scared of the robbers, and then, you know, there's that scene underneath the bed where he, like, decides, you know, only a wuss is going to hide and be scared, and he goes outside and runs into old man Marley and gets scared again, but then he just kind of overcomes all that. Um, And then at the end, one of the cool things, in my opinion, is, you know, he's telling the old man, hey, man, grow up, call your son. You know, this is the time when you want to be with your family, and uh, just suck it up and go for it. And like it's like I think Susanna mentioned it earlier, like it's hard not to like maybe break a tear, you know, at the end where you see the old man hugging his family and also when Kevin runs to his mom at the end when she comes home after pretending that he's mad at her. But um yeah, I think that's I guess what home alone is to me these days. <laughs> right. I, I love in the beginning of this film how it's um the extended McAllister family. It was presumably not all of um, Macaulay Culkin's brothers and sisters, the McAllister, his immediate family in that opening scenes. But I love how chaotic it feels. It reminds me when I was younger going to family reunions, I have several cousins and aunts and uncles and that sort of thing. Oh, I know what that's like. Uh, Yeah, and it captures the the madness of that you're just in a madhouse and you're just hoping you can leave the house without someone breaking a glass or or something. (laughs) The, yeah, uh, and also, that's the only kind of environment in which the parents could ever even conceivably leave the kid behind, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, look at all the... You have, you have all these cousins, you have all these uh, brothers and sisters, and their last name's McAllister. I'm thinking Irish. Catherine O'Hara, for goodness sake, is like redhead. 
Yes. Number one, how many of those kids are redheaded? Uh, the guy from Pete and Pete oh, yeah. is redheaded. Yeah, another one. Yeah, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, uh, I'm like thinking to myself, like, and also, isn't the church that they go to isn't that is that not a Catholic church? It appears to be. I don't recall any close-up saying what specific. I, I believe it was. Okay, But I sure. don't know if they actually show the, the 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 actual denomination. But what's funny is uh, Macaulay Culkin is actually Roman Catholic. Is he? Okay. It's just I'm just throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> one of the things I know, and and he's got so many brothers and sisters. There's so many Culkins. There is, you know. It, isn't Rory in the movie as like a little little kid? It's a Kieran Culkin oh, Karen, is in right. there as a kid, but Karen, there is also yeah. a Rory Culkin and a Kieran Culkin, the one that's a little kid that drinks Pepsi and, and pees the bed in Home <laughs> Alone. Uh, recently was in uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World oh, as, yeah. a, as a, a gay character named Wallace, uh, one of the friends of the yeah. Michael Sarah in that film. But uh, yeah, Rory Culkin has been in stuff like Scream 4, apparently, which I haven't seen yet. Uh, So he's been in some stuff, too. Uh, He was in Richie Rich. Well, that was with Macaulay Culkin. Anyway, it goes down. uh, uh, Not Rugrats. In the um, R Gang. Uh, What was that called? Little Rascals. Little Rascals. You know, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, But that's possible. But also there's a sister in there. but But again, their family is Roman Catholic. Twelve <laughs> kids, Catholic. You know, I, you look at with Macaulay Culkin. I just um, he's been in movies here and there throughout the years, but I do really miss him. I, I don't know. I just think he did such a good job with these children roles he had. And while I can respect his decision to be very choosy about his roles in the future or in, in present day, I mean, as he's becoming a, a young man, that I don't know. He really had something special about him, and I sort of wish he would have kept on going. But it's really difficult for child actors. I got one for you. What if this kid? What if Macaulay Culkin from The Good Son had been in Home Alone? Uh, it would have been a different movie, I think. <laughs> but, but no, like Culkin, not that different. Culkin really did, really did explode. I'm glad you mentioned The Good Son because that's a that is a terrifying, disturbing movie, and he really does get to act in that one. And I, I almost wish his career had gone in more that way, so that he could have smoothly transitioned from child actor to adult actor. But Macaulay Culkin was was made. Huge because of this movie. He was uh, he was the the youngest host of Saturday Night Live because of this movie. Huh? Yeah, and like wait, the did episode, that beat out Drew Barrymore? Uh, I thought Drew I, Barrymore I, was younger. I believe she was in her teens. No, it was right after Firestarter. We'll we'll look this up. We'll 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 get to the bottom of this for for a future episode. I guess uh, Home Alone Part Two. But but yeah, like Macaulay Culkin, like I, that's the only time I can remember a child hosting Saturday Night Live, and he's in all the sketches. Hmm. Most of them use the contrivance that it's like a character you know, but as a kid, but it still works, and it's great to see him goofing off on live TV. Fred Savage. He also he did an amazing job, you know. In, the early 2000s as a young grown-up in this movie Party Monster. Did oh, any of you yeah. guys see that? I haven't oh, seen that yeah. yet. No, is it good? It's Seth Green. He's just incredible. It's, it's, and he plays okay. this like wild party animal club kid. Huh. And you just, it's just mesmerizing. He is so good in it and so grown-up and dramatic and powerful and charming and quirky and just, it's really a, an amazing performance. I mean, I, I think he's really talented. I, 
uh, even as a grown-up, I really think he's a great actor. He has been really talented throughout all of the stages of his life, and I really would like to see more from him. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, you know my favorite performance? Uh, Michael Jackson's Black or White. Oh, come on. It's like two minutes, one minute, whatever. <laughs> he does what he needs to do. Yeah. Um, okay, he back to... George Wendt, and uh, he plays his guitar. Okay, back to... Uh, away from Michael Jackson, back to Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, if you look on the Facebook sequel cast page, I posted uh, a skit that was from In Living Color, where it was Home Alone with, like, Michael Jackson or something, where Michael Jackson was visiting Macaulay Culkin at home, was the concept of the sketch, which is kind of strange to see. Uh, you don't, yeah, you don't see too many comedy sketches that, that imply child rape. No, no, you don't. And, um, but we were talking about sort of a, a big core of the film is Robert, uh, the late Robert's Blossoms as uh, Old Man Marley, the, the old man who was introduced creepily when the, the kids were all looking at him. They say, oh, he pours salt on bodies and they dissolve into slugs at the beginning. That, that's and, uh, not what they say, that, that, that the okay. salt mummifies the bodies and makes them easier to dispose of. And that's why he has the big barrel of salt with him all the time. Okay, something with salt. I just made up something, apparently. Yes. <laughs> but it's uh, it's really interesting seeing his performance uh, in this movie as Old Man Marley. Because it's so so many of the other characters in this film are screaming the entire time. And yeah. in the big scene between uh, Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister with Robert's Blossom as Old Man Marley in this church. The way the character of Old Man Marley speaks and delivers the lines is very much like a, a realistic conversation you'd see on the street. It's very subtle, and it makes it that much more effective and makes you pay attention to the scene uh, that much more. Especially in contrast to how the kids had thought he would be, like this scary mm-hmm. monster. Yeah. You know, that when he's like this sweet, gentle old man, uh, you know, with a family and all these problems, I mean, it just it's so humbling and powerful experience. Now, I don't know if this is correct or not, but I've he- I've always heard that that character was not originally in the script and that they added it at some point to sort of, you know, give more dimension to the story. But I'm so glad they did. I really think that whole storyline just adds so much to the movie. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like an afterthought to me. I, I would have never assumed that. No, it was something yeah. they added uh, to the... There's a documentary on one of the Home Alone DVDs, and they talk about that um, they added that to the script kind of... Well, did someone Whoa. fall down there? Everybody all right? <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, the neighbor's dog was barking. I just had to close the window so that it wouldn't intrude on the podcast. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, uh, I was no. so afraid somebody had fallen off a cliff. <laughs> but, uh, a book. No, 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 somebody dropped a giant paint can on me as I was trying to rob their house. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on... Uh, one of the Home Alone DVDs, there's a documentary where they talk about, just as you said, Susanna, that the addition of Old Man Marley was a very last-second addition because they needed more for the kid to do besides watch movies and eat ice cream and keep people from breaking into his house. And it adds a real heart to the movie. And I think, you know, his uh, conversation he has with Old Man Marley makes uh, Kevin reconsider his relationship with his own family. And there is something strange in a lot of families between fathers and sons not being able to communicate with each other. And that it's resolved in just a long shot of uh, Kevin McAllister watching Old Ben Marley shake the hand and hug his son, where there's no real dialogue and there's no, like, thumbs up and no monologue of uh, Marley talking to Kevin McAllister. That it's, it's real concise yes. storytelling. Yeah. 
Well, it reminds me, you know, John Hughes was a huge fan of the director Capra. He mm-hmm. loved, you know, that sort of the idea that, um, you know, there could always be a wonderful, happy outcome and that, you know, you have to believe in optimism no matter what. And uh, you remember that scene in the French Hotel when they're watching It's a Wonderful Life with the French dubbing. I'm sure that was not an accident. I'm sure that was on purpose. <laughs> and if you think about it, you know, the whole point of It's a Wonderful Life is making you realize that you're so lucky to have your life and you're lucky to have your family and, you know, just sort of making you realize those things in case you ever take them for granted. And that's, in a way, what kind of the old man Marley character helps do for Kevin. And I think, you know, Kevin realizes, oh, my God, wouldn't it be horrible if I really, really didn't see my family for years and years and years kind of thing. And it drives home that point that he's so lucky that he does have them. Yeah, indeed. It's one of those things that pulls on the heartstrings. I mean... And, and walking into this movie, watching again for uh, the show, the sequel cast, I was very cynical about that character, uh, remembering watching it as a, as a younger kid, but watching it now that I'm older, I sort of really appreciated. I don't know, it just sort of hit me a different way. And uh, like a lot of movies, uh, you know, written by John Hughes, you can revisit these as you get older and you kind of take away something different each time. I think he, I think he knew that. I mean... I mean, he he taught he Hughes used to talk about you know knowing that um, when his his youth films, at least the teen movies like you know Breakfast Club and all that, he knew that uh, twenty years after they were in theaters, they would be nostalgia for the kids who had grown up on them, and that those people mm-hmm. would want to be showing them to their kids. You know, I think he was aware um, that down the road we'd all be talking about these movies in in these ways and and seeing them in different ways as we went through different life stages. Our sponsor on SequelCast 2 and Friends today is Podcorn. Let's talk a little bit about them. Hi, this is Matt Bradley-Shirky, host of the SequelCast 2 and Friends podcast, and I just want to tell you about a a real fun personal experience I had using Podcorn. Podcorn, it's a unique online marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, ranging from host-read ads to topical discussions and interview segments. And uh, so why would this be interesting? Well, this is a podcast, right? SequelCast 2, it's a podcast. And if you're listening to it, I bet you have an idea for a podcast yourself. And uh, and when you get to making one, or maybe you already have one, you, you really need to think about getting uh, getting a sponsor. Because podcasting is a hobby. You know, it's it's not cheap. Any, any money you can get to wet the beak a little, as uh, Thrasher likes to say, uh, would, would help greatly. And so with Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all size, shapes, and sizes can uh, browse and choose opportunities on the platform, set their own rates, really easy to use. You don't have to give up any rights to your podcast. And uh, Podcorn supports you there every step of the way. In fact, initially I was unsure if uh, this podcast was like a big enough one to even be on their platform, and I got a response right away from their uh, technical support. Really nice, really, uh, we had a good sort of conversation, clearing up any confusion I had with them, and I'm sure uh, they would do the same to you. They just want to give podcasters transparency and creative freedom. And I think and that it's easy to use. You're not going blindly to a site, emailing them and going, oh, hey, hey, sir, hey, miss, can I go? And uh, uh, would you like to sponsor my podcast? Uh, you, you know, if you do that, no place is going to get back to you, especially if you don't have that much of an audience. But, you know, Podcorn, they take, uh, they're very open. They want to help you out. So uh, I would highly recommend them. So you can click the link in the show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities for your podcast today. Thanks, and uh, now we go back to our show. Uh, James, what do you think about John Candy in the film? 
in his cameo. <laughs> I guess it's funny you ask that. I think that's probably one of my least favorite characters in the whole movie. Oh, yeah? Um, oh, yeah, just, what? Did you ask the, the other Polar. day if Old Man put that? The 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 Polaminski the the band the yeah, Polka and the Kenosha, Kenosha Kickers. Kickers yes well you asked the other day on Twitter if Old Man Marley was cheesy I I thought that John Candy's character was a lot more cheesy than, than the Old Man Marley character it just didn't seem too real to me that something like that would really happen um, and then he's kind well, of I think that character was funny because the characters along the lines of like a Chicagoite or or a a friendly character which is kind of like a big jolly guy, kind of like a Santa, who's coming to help <laughs> out um, Kate McAllister. And, yeah, do you know what, though? Some people, yeah, wouldn't do that. But if I saw somebody in true distress, I'd probably try to give a helping hand, and then I would give her a ride in the back of my car with my band, the Kenosha Kickers. <laughs> I, th- I think watching that, that scene again, I just felt more nostalgia for John Candy than anything else. Uh, he's, he's great in the scene. I love seeing him work with Catherine O'Hara. John Candy was and still is one of my favorite comic actors. He's probably in my top three, and and it's great. And it's it's great. It's it's just great to see him. And it comes as such a surprise uh-huh. because you know it, this you know it's it's just such a nice treat that here comes John Candy to help Kevin's mother get where she needs to be, and and. You know, it's it's kind of like dessert has come to the movie. A really nice dessert that's not too <laughs> sweet. Um, and the other, the other thing about this is what my my favorite holiday film is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And because of John Candy in in my mind and John Hughes, you know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in this movie are linked. And there's always a part of me that when I see John Candy in this, I like to imagine that it's his character, Del Griffith, from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, <laughs> and that this is just where his life has taken him as a truck driver. Well, again, isn't there isn't there a Hughes verse where all of these uh, all of these stories kind of are in the same universe? Isn't that There's, a theory? I've heard people talk about a, 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 a Hughes verse, and perhaps it perhaps it could be. Well, there's a fictional town, you know, Shermer, Shermer, Illinois, that he he created, that he sets a lot of the movies in, including, of course, Breakfast Club. We all know, you know, at the beginning when Anthony Michael Hall's reading the letter out loud, and he goes, you know, Shermer High, Shermer, Illinois. And that was, (laughs) Shermer is a real, like, Chicago area word. I mean, there's a street, I think, named after that. I think John Hughes is one of the schools he went to as a kid, I think, was named Shermer something. So that's a real... Place. And in fact, there's a Kevin Smith movie that is, has to do with people trying to find the fictional town of Shermer. Chasing so, Amy and Dogma. Yep. So, yeah, maybe we'll all find Shermer one day. The Shermer in our hearts, if nothing else. <laughs> oh. I'm always looking for my small bill. <laughs> okay. Uh... Sorry to derail the podcast by mentioning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, best. What's What's your favorite trap? Favorite trap. That's a good question, Jason. Um, I I think I I just love. I think the sequence with the spider that uh, Macaulay Culkin sees the spider as a Kevin McAllister and tosses it on uh, Daniel Stern as Marv tosses it on his chest <laughs> and the scream Daniel Stern lets out yeah. really oh. sells the moment. <laughs> Actually, uh, Uncle Milkshake, can you put that? Can you put that scream in here? Uh, yeah, I can cut that scream in there, sure. But it's, all right, uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, like I, 
I, I just really busted up laughing at that. I knew the moment was coming. I knew exactly how the scene was going to play out. But just the high-pitched shriek. And uh, and it lands on Joe Pesci's chest, and then uh, uh, Daniel Stern picks up a shovel and whacks him in the stomach. And again, you're not seeing the bruising or blood that might actually happen from such a uh, an injury. But... And, uh, yeah, when I watched this as a kid, I just remembered this just now. My dad, after every single, like, slapstick scene, stressed over and over again, don't actually do this. This could kill somebody. <laughs> and and uh, my dad was is someone that loves the Three Stooges. But uh, for some reason, the, the violence in Home Alone really sort of, maybe because it was a kid doing it on adults, really stuck out to him more. Well, also, um, I guess the, I like people falling down. I yeah. love people falling <laughs> down. So uh, the ice on the porch. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the, the, I, I love I love falling down humor, and that's so cool when he's actually trying to get up each step and falling back, and then them together, and then ah uh, uh, just that was all. That was like the, the looked like the least painful, but also so painful. It wasn't one where anything was getting punctured, which is another one of my fears. <laughs> and just uh, hold on a second. I'm I'm getting a lot of interference behind me. Hold on. Okay. Hold uh, on. James, what's your favorite trap in Home Alone? Yeah, I was gonna say by far my favorite trap has to be when uh, Joe Pesci gets essentially tarred and feathered. He <laughs> runs into the cellophane with the caulk or whatever is on there, and hits the fan, and all the feathers going on him. No, is that tar? Um, you know, I kind of get complacent about the others, and I, I giggle. But every time I see that scene, I just roll laughing. It cracks me up big time. Now, what is it that makes the uh, feather stick to him? Is it tar or? I thought it was treacle. Well, he puts like some caulk onto that cellophane that uh-huh. he walks into at the beginning through the door, and so there's all that sticky crap all over him, and then the feathers get blown on him, and they stick to him. Pretty sure it's just caulk. Okay. Uh, Susanna, is there a trap that sticks out for you from Home Alone? Well, this isn't a trap. Well, I guess this is a kind of a trap. I love the scene when uh, Kevin makes it look like there's a fun Christmas party going on in the house. When <laughs> he has all the mannequins, like, dancing, uh-huh. and, you know, the, the Michael Jordan uh, poster, like, moving around on the train set and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the one scene that, that seems totally unrealistic. Obviously, you needed, you know, a Hollywood production department to make that happen, but it's just so joyful and adorable and, you know, a little kid's version of a swanky grown-up cocktail party, and it also reminds me of one of my other favorite movies of all time, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, when he has the mannequin in the bed uh, that, yeah. snore, that snores oh, wow. and sort of, like, seems like him, and that's very Hughesian, you know, these inventive young kids using uh, props and the technology at their disposal to uh, trick grown-ups. Yeah, I was really taken by seeing Home Alone where he goes to the shopping by himself and he gets a toothbrush and he wants to ask, is it ADA approved by the American <laughs> Dental Association? And uh, as a kid watching that film, I, after watching it, I immediately asked my parents, or my, is my toothbrush ADA certified? Not knowing <laughs> what that even meant. But... <laughs> Uh, well, that that's something I find really touching is, like, on one hand, he, at the beginning, he kind of wants to, like, do all those bad kid things, you know, like, jump on the bed and eat, eat ice cream, and, but yeah. then uh, oh. over time, he, and he's shame. such a, yeah, but then he's just such a good little boy, <laughs> at the end, he wants to, like, you know, use the, not in the end, in the middle and the end, he wants to, like, use a good toothbrush, he wants to make sure he takes a shower the right way, and, you know, mm-hmm. oh my God, when he chops down his own Christmas tree and makes his little macaroni and cheese dinner and sets the table perfectly, and it's just <laughs> that, it's just the sweetest 
thing ever that, you know, especially when you think he feels guilty that the family's not there. So he's, like, trying to be good, you know, to make up for it. It's just really sweet. Right. Also, uh, don't you think he's kind of trying to be good to get the family back? Again, he's still Uh at a point where he really doesn't know. He knows he's home. He doesn't know where his family is. He should just realize they're in Florida. But he doesn't know when they're coming back. So it's like he has to almost redeem himself for all the bad he did. Right. It's it's a little bit heartbreaking. When he goes to Santa. Oh, yeah. So what about it that's kind of dopey when he sees Santa Claus? Just a bit too on the nose. That he misses his family. He wants it back. Oh, not what that age? He's still, he the character still doesn't seem like he knows. Oh, hold on. What was that, James, again? Well, I, said, I, I was saying I think he feels guilty when he goes to see Santa, and that's mm-hmm. why he's been being good. You know, he, you know, he thinks he made his family disappear and trying to make up for it, and then he asks the, the Santa that works for the real Santa to relay the message. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not the real Santa, but can you give him a message? <laughs> God, that is so... <laughs> that's, that's such a cute scene. Yeah. That is such is. perfect, like, little, little kid thinking. Where, like, they're, they're just old enough to realize that Santa can't be on every street corner ringing a bell, but not quite old enough not quite old enough to, to, to see the fantasy in Santa. I think that's so beautiful. And, and it's an example of a kind of joke that works kind of on two levels, both for kids and for adults. And that, you know, they were seeing Santa Claus at the mall and really pouring his heart out to him, which is something kids could relate to. But then seeing Santa Claus smoking a cigarette out in the parking lot is, you know, their reality. Oh, my God, but wait, yeah, you're absolutely right, because think about it. They couldn't give up the ghost. They couldn't have a kid on screen admitting that that's not the real Santa or that there's right. no Santa. Because kids are going to see this movie. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, I just caught that. See, I always figured you shouldn't, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't reveal that there's no Santa. You should confess that there's no Santa. <laughs> huh? It's, it's sort of a power of myth sort of thing, I guess, in my mind. Well, again, here, here's my question to you. Why did you not like this at age 12? Well, you, you know what I think? Thinking back on it, and I did do some serious thinking on this uh, in the in the run-up to this podcast... I think what turned me against it, and you, you've all touched on how when Kevin is first left alone, he he does all the things any kid would want to do when they had the run of the house. And I think the difference between when I turned between when I was ten and I was eleven is when I turned eleven, that was when my parents really started giving me a lot of autonomy. And uh, but conversely, that was also the age when I started picking up a lot of responsibility. And I think that was kind of my thing. At, at 10, I think it's awesome when Kevin has the run of the house. At 11, I'm like, my God, he's being so irresponsible. <laughs> I, not even I would want a candy dinner. Like, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I've, I've, been a, I've been an old man since I was 11. I, I guess I ought to let everybody know that. I, I've long had the soul of, an old, of a crotchety old Harlan Ellison type man. Uh, you know, we've been talking about Home Alone so long, we haven't even touched on that the uh, score for this film was done by a uh, famed composer, John Williams. Oh, it's an amazing score. It is. And uh, I really like the piece of music where Kevin is running back home from the church and kind of prepping the traps. And it's this real dramatic sort of mixture of traditional Christmas music with uh, something else added to it. 
It's very dark. It has a bit of a darkness. There, there's yeah. like some hymn, like there's like dun 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 dun. dun. It's very. It's almost Danny Elfman in a like bit, a few yeah. places. Well, what do you think? Danny Elfman is taking cues from Williams. What do you think about the music in Home Alone, Susanna? Well, I I think that the fact that it's a John Williams score really is one of the things that elevates it to being timeless, mm-hmm. this movie. I think if it had had a lot of kind of 80s, think about it, like 80s, early 90s, you know, synthesizer-y sounds or, uh, you know, whatever it might have been, uh, I think it would have been really more rooted in that time. And the great thing about a John Hughes score, I mean, think about his greatest, you know, E.T., I mean, things like that. Oh, my God, they just send your heart soaring. But they also allow those films to be accessed from this very deep kind of emotional place inside all of us that's inside all of us that has nothing to do with what year it is um, on the calendar, and really. And I think uh, almost in the same way classical music is kind of like timeless in that same way. So I think that um, that was one of the smartest things uh, about this movie was having this incredible John Williams score. People can watch Home Alone 30 years from now and they'll still be able to connect with it emotionally, I think, largely because of that music. Do you enjoy the music in Home Alone, James? Yeah, I did. Um, I guess the, the the Bing Crosby scene where he's singing under the cone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty good scene. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Also, like the music at the very end where he's setting up the traps. So probably the best. Yeah, one interesting thing about the film that I didn't I was listening to a little bit of the audio commentary from the director uh, Chris Columbus, uh, who it should be said has done. A lot of other films, uh, you know, ranging in things from Harry Potter 1 and 2 to uh, uh, a a film of the Broadway musical Rent. Um, So he's really done a different work in his career. Uh, Yet, however, uh, John Williams was a last-minute replacement for the composer in this film. Originally, Chris Columbus wanted the composer uh, Bruce Broughton, who was the composer of Young Sherlock Holmes, a film that Chris Columbus had written and he wasn't able to do it because of scheduling, and they were able to get John Williams at the last second. And uh, I agree, Susanna. It, it really does lift the film and, and up into something more than it might have been and makes it feel Christmassy without uh, just relying on pop music or uh, the popular Christmas carols. That's right. Yeah, also, I agree as well. It does make it ageless. Mm-hmm. Um, there really isn't anything, the only thing, I guess, at the tech level that seems to uh, date it. Um, and the TV, he doesn't get a, he doesn't have like a flat screen. Well, you other than that, you, you mentioned that because one of the key, there's two key moments in this. In, there's a movie within a movie in Home Alone. There's this, there's this gangster movie that Kevin gets on on on, on tape called Angels with Filthy Souls. And twice in the movie, using using the pause and rewind and play buttons on the VCR, he uses. He uses this movie to make people outside the house think that there's an angry man in the house. He does it with the pizza delivery boy, and he also yeah. does it with the wet bandits. And I love all the footage from that movie, but that that's one of those things. Like, in this movie, it, it makes perfect sense that you'd be rewinding, playing, pausing t- to on this. But like, if this movie was made today... Kevin would just download the film, put it into iMovie, <laughs> and, and could be editing whole conversations yeah. on the fly. And I think it's... I, I love that in this movie, that moment is analog. I really don't want to see that moment done digitally. It would take a lot of the fun out of it. Well, did you realize that Angels with Filthy Souls is not an actual film? It's a, something they filmed just for this movie. 
Yes. But they made it look like an old film very successfully, I think. It's perfect. Yeah. One of the really interesting things... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, when I talked to Anthony Uh, Michael Hall, he told me... Anthony Michael Hall told me something really interesting, which was that um, he and John Hughes used to, when they were working on, I guess, when they were working on Breakfast Club, they would sometimes, like, hang out at, at, at John Hughes' house and watch old black and white movies. And they would huh. watch, like, L- Laurel and Hardy and stuff like that. And so Anthony Michael Hall told me that he, he, he thought that, you know, a lot of that element of Home Alone was probably inspired by the fact that John Hughes himself loved to sit around and watch old great black and white movies and had this tremendous love for that kind of stuff. Oh, how cool. See, it's cool when you can actually, like, throw something of yourself into a script. I doubt as a kid he had to defend his home. But if you can put those little <laughs> nods, he enjoys. Um, well, I don't know. Is that in your book? Did he ever have to defend his home from two burglars? <laughs> no, not that I know of. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, to wrap, before we wrap things up with our final thoughts in Home Alone, uh, I think we should take a second to play a little game, which is if you could pretend and make up an idea of what you think the ideal sequel to Home Alone would be, what would it be? And you can pretend that it's Macaulay Culkin at the age he was after this movie. It could be present-day Macaulay Culkin. Like, that part doesn't matter. But uh, let's take turns and play this little game and sort of pitch a a sequel to Home Alone, pretending the other sequels did not exist. Um, I got one. I got one. I got one. Okay, go, Jason. Okay. Um, McAllister... Yeah, and his uh, sister, who would be played by Anne Brooke Shields, they're actually left alone on an island, and they have to defend a Blue <laughs> Lagoon against uh, two uh, pirates who are known as the Salty Sea Pirates, and uh, <laughs> they have to set traps, a la uh, Swiss Family Robinson, uh, Tarzan, um, King of the Graves, uh, uh, and defend their island, as well as have incestual sex. <laughs> okay, that's a... It's a different take on the Home Alone formula. Uh, Thrasher, do you have something? Um, yeah, I, I got one. Uh, it would take place. Uh, it would take place uh, a little later. Uh, you find out at the beginning of the movie that Kevin's family has accidentally left him at home several more times since the first movie. Uh, so Kevin has become emancipated and now lives on his own, and we call it Home Away from Home. But here's the twist. Old Man Marley really was killing people and using salt to mummify their bodies. <laughs> and Kevin is the only person left alive who knows his secret. So now that Kevin's away, emancipated and away from the protection of his family, uh, Old Man Marley is trying to kill Kevin. But there's another twist, because you got to bring back uh, Joe, uh, you got to bring back Pesci and, and Daniel Stern. Uh, they got out of prison. They decided to straighten up and fly right. So they want to go to Kevin and apologize for what they put him through. Uh, <laughs> and Kevin thinks they're out for revenge. And he thinks Marley is trying to protect him from the bandits. So it becomes this whole uh, comedy of errors uh, with Marley trying to kill Kevin and Kevin thinking that Marley's the good guy and still brutalizing the bandits who don't who don't want to lose their cool and go back to crime, but Kevin's making it so hard because now he has access to a gun. That's a lot more clever than the idea I thought up, which is you could do a sequel to Home Alone where instead of being trapped in a house, he's trapped in the airport, sort of like a Die Hard 2 take on things. But, um, okay. 
Uh, well, what was that movie with Tom Hanks? The Terminal. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same. Black, unaccompanied minors. Unaccompanied minors, yes. Okay, so my idea is not so good. Uh, James. No, I have another I have another good one. I have another good one. Give James a chance, man. Right. Give James. Okay, James. This is, no, because this is better. Oh, okay, James. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I can top those. Um, I guess one thing that I would like to see is perhaps Buzz hogtied and left on the third floor while Kevin actually gets to go on vacation. Kevin Uncle Frank. <laughs> That would be kind of cool, this sort of, like, snotty teenager having to deal with things by himself. Deal with the but, same uh, punishment his uh, younger brother had to. Yeah, forget Buzz. Uh, Susanna, do you have an idea for a Home Alone sequel, pretending the others did not exist? Oh, nothing as good as you got. Maybe something where it's present day and he's... A- I can't say mine now after that beautiful... That, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> See, okay. mine involved Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't you finish that thought, Jason? How did your idea for a Home Alone sequel involve Nazis? All right. And then uh, we'll wrap up turns with our thoughts on Turns out Marley is, Marley is a Nazi. Um, he, <laughs> he, he ran from Germany. <laughs> oh, it's, it's very much like the movie... It's very much Apt like the pupil? movie Apt Pupil. Okay. Uh, there's nothing more to it. It's just that the meat old man. Yeah, just is... that. Okay. And he winds right. up killing. He kills the burglars. He kills the burglars. Okay. So under the tutelage of Marley, go for it. Uh, okay, well, let's keep that horrific uh, image out of our minds. Because Alan Oldhausen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's wrap up uh, on this episode of the sequel cast with our thoughts on Home Alone revisiting it. Um, for me, it's a film that held up better than I might have expected. I thought a few parts were a bit slow. I thought of thought, uh, sort of thought there'd be more of the uh, the wet bandits in the movie, but it was really heartfelt, and that helped uh, tie everything together in the end. And that you do feel glad at the end that yes, uh, Kevin McAllister is back with his family. Um, Thrasher, I, you know, it, it's it's a real sweet movie, and I, you know, looking at it as an adult, I did enjoy it more than than I thought I would. Um, uh, all I can say is I feel so sorry for the wet bandits. <laughs> I, I really feel for, for feel for them, but I have to admire their tenacity. I'm sure plenty of criminals would have left after the first time they were set on fire, but they they really wanted it. I'm almost ashamed yeah. that they didn't get a stereo or anything. Uh, Jason, I love the ingenuity of Kevin. Um, just the way that he sets up the traps. I love that as a kid. I still love it to this day, dude. just the craftsmanship that goes into torturing uh, two guys trying to break into your house. And uh, James, what is something about uh, the original Home Alone film that makes it stick out in your mind year after year? Well, I think it just has a little bit of everything. You know, it's got the slapstick comedy. It's got the, you know, the dramatic scenes at the end where you're almost shedding a tear. Um, and it's just, you know, the story of the kid growing up like within two days and I don't know, it just makes me laugh and cry and smile at the same time. 
uh, and Susanna. Aww. I just think what I love about it is, you know, when you think of it, you think of the him standing with his hands on his cheeks and all this kind of wacky, silly stuff with the burglars. But the uh-huh. real, the real truth of the movie is its heart and the meaning of family and the meaning of being grateful for all the love in your life. And um, that's what I think of whenever I see it. All right. Well, I think we've taken a, a fair shake uh, looking at a. Uh... Home Alone, this episode of the sequel cast. Oh, one, one last point. Yes. I did have a chance to look this up. Okay. Uh, uh, Jason, you are correct. You're the SNL trivia master. Drew Barrymore was the youngest host of SNL at seven years of age. Macaulay Culkin was the second youngest at 11 years of age. And then Fred Savage was, I believe, 12 or 13. He yep. was 13. Damn right. Okay. Interesting. Uh, James, uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Any last Home Alone things you want to say? Uh, no, I think I've talked it all. Okay. And uh, Susanna, thanks for coming on the sequel cast. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, no Wonderful problem. Day. Absolutely. I want to talk to her more. I would love to have her uh, comments on uh, Ferris Bueller uh, sequel possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wouldn't it be great if that ever did happen? There's a little bit of my book about that, about, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Broderick or Alan Ruck ever sort of dreaming about what that might have been like. I think uh, there might be a joke in there, you know, imagining, uh, <clears throat> you know, Ferris sort of um, getting Alan Ruck's character out of an old age home so they can go have one last hurrah. <laughs> like, oh, well, I've heard oh, rumors yeah. that there was a script floating around for, for Ferris Bueller getting a friend, or like, like to skip it to skip a day of work. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's inter- I mean, now that John Hughes is gone, of course, it's hard to imagine if mm. or when or how any of these things would happen, but you know, Ferris just had its 25th anniversary this year and uh, it was amazing uh to see how many people of course still love that movie. That's another one that just keeps uh, going and going. Certainly. He, really was. he was a singular talent. Uh, and I'm I'm just uh, I was I was looking down his filmography and I was just amazed at how many things he worked on. Absolutely. And uh, you can get a copy of Susanna Gora's uh, book, uh, You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, The Brat Pack, John Hughes, and Your Impact on a Generation. It recently came out on uh, paperback, in paperback. And you can also get it, I read it through uh, my Kindle. So it's available as an e-book as well. Oh, cool. And uh, the website for the book is bratpackbook.com. So... um, all right, everyone, uh, thanks for coming on the sequel cast to talk uh, Home Alone. And uh, uh, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. <laughs> ah, okay, that works. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. All right, thanks, everyone. And a Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye. bye.